pray. Father, thank you for a chance to look at your word. What a, what a privilege that is. We're doing this very publicly and very open. We're streaming this right now. Lord, we live in a very free country. We thank you for all those men and women who have helped that become a reality. And so, Lord, we still can proclaim boldly with authority these truths that we hold so dear. May we not take that for granted. May we be good listeners today. And then those who apply the text, as Kyle challenged us already. So, Father, thank you for this chance to look into your word. Father, we know there's those at our home right now watching that cannot be here for injuries or going through struggles, Lord, of some sort. Our heart goes out for them. We want them here with us, Lord. But we pray that you would heal them and help them as they uh, suffer through this trial, Lord, and that you would return them soon to us. May they know we love them. We think of our missionaries around the world. We particularly think of Kyle and Della, Lord, who are baptizing a new convert today in, in a deeply Muslim world. And so we pray for that, Lord, that you would um, protect uh, this person, um, that you would protect them in their ministry, Lord. And thank you for saving people from every tribe and tongue and language, just like you promised you would. And so, Lord, may we continue to be a part of missions around the world, Lord. Father, now hear your people learn from you. Hear your people grow in grace and knowledge of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, definitions are important, aren't they? How we define things is really often what we believe. Webster says a definition is a statement of the meaning of a term. The act of defining or making something definite, distinct, or clear. Ooh, that's a little bit of a problem in our society today, isn't it? Definitions are changing all the time. We're trying to figure out what they mean. They're moving them. Anything from marriage to sexuality and so forth, those things are moving all the time. So definitions are important to us. But there is no more important person that you should be able to define than Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? If asked of you, what would you say? Who is Jesus? How would you define him? And once you define him, doesn't defining him demand a response? There's one thing to say who he is, but it's a whole other thing to respond to him. Many people have claimed the name of Jesus in all sorts of things. But once defined, do they follow him? Think about this. How one defines and responds reveals their eternal destination. Reveals where you're going. Reveals what God has done in your heart and what he has reserved for you. A wrong definition leads to a wrong response which results in divine judgment who is Jesus you got to get that right to miss that would be disastrous if the father has to find the son to you I want you to know that if the father has done this to you he's told you and the spirits illuminated you through his word and your response is is I believe, I, I understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is, he is the sent one, the chosen one. He is the Son of Man. He represents me. Oh, what blessing and reward await you. 
Listen to John 6, 44. Listen to this very first opening phrase of Jesus. For this is the will of my Father. Well, I think I want to listen when the Bible says that. Here's the Father's will. This is what the Father wants you to know, that everyone who beholds the Son, and that's, that's a bigger word than just, well, yeah, there's Jesus. Behold takes in this idea. It's a, it's a word we get the word theater from. The curtains come back. The lights go on. You see it all right in front of you. For everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, that, that is an active term there, uh, places our faith, a God-given faith in him. And then Jesus says this, will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. What a promise. The Bible defines him as one who is beholden to us. He's the son. He, he shares the equality with the father. This is how we define him. The gospel accounts define him very quickly when they open up. Mark 1.1 begins the gospel by calling Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. John 1.1 defines him as the word, the logos, right? Who was with God, equality with God, and was God. Verse 14 says that the logos, the word, the all-knowing one, the all-wise one, is now residing in flesh among us. And John says, we beheld, there's that word again, we beheld his glory. Paul describes Jesus as the wisdom of God, the power of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. So, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the long-awaited one, the one that Genesis 3.15 begins to lay out this redemptive plan that he's coming, the one who will crush the head of serpents that's laid out there for you all through the Bible. So he's the Messiah, the Christ. He's the Son of God. In such an important term that we're going to see in here, that he is the Son of God because the Son has everything the Father has. And the Father has everything the Son has. So there's an equality to that. See, I'm defining him for you. I hope you're catching this. This is what we would say if someone says, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. He's the Son of man. That's a very important term. Because that means he's like us. And you know why that's so important? Because someone has to represent you. Someone has to die in your place. Someone had to take on flesh and blood and, and hang on a cross and be judged like he committed your sin. Somebody had to be our representative. He's the son of man. See, we're defining Jesus, aren't we? We're defining who he is. We're holding to him. And you know one of the great things is Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He does not change because he does not need to change. So the same Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus we have today. Unchanging. And we love him for that. So who is Jesus? What a great question that's going to get asked in our text today. My goal today is that all of you can come away, and I hope that if there's people who don't know Jesus can come away and say, I want to know him. <laughs> and God moves in your heart and you receive him today, and for the rest of us that know him, can come away and say, I know how to tell somebody who Jesus is. Articulate it, define him, and then live for him. As we turn to our text today, we find the disciples again with Jesus, 
It was another one of the days recorded that they are spending time with their Savior. At this point, the disciples have been with Jesus for more than two and a half years. He is working his way to the cross. In fact, the texts from here on out are going to be teaching texts. We're going to move into the Passion Week and so forth as Mark begins to show what Christ had come to this earth for. Early on, they had believed that they had found the Messiah. So they're walking along with Jesus, and, and they, they, they believed early on. Andrew said, hey, Peter, you've got to come here. We found the Messiah. John chapter 1, verse 41. Nathaniel calls him in, in verse, uh, verse 49, the king of Israel. So they, they've already responded right to him early on. John the Baptist points out him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1, 29. And the apostle John calls him the Son of God. So all the disciples had seen the eyewitness of his divine power. They've been awestruck at his teaching. They, who teaches like this? He teaches with such authority. He commands attention. They've witnessed all that. And they've been in tune to their own weaknesses and sinfulness as they sit on a boat in the middle of a storm. He speaks to the wind and the seas, and they go, oh man, who, who's in the boat with us? I mean, there's a woe to themselves of realizing their uh, inferiority to Christ going, even the waves and the wind obey this man. They see that weakness compared to his greatness. Peter and the disciples were challenged whether they were going to leave Jesus as everybody else was at the end of John 6. Peter says this, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of God. And yet in our text, Jesus is going to ask them yet again, who am I? Who am I? And I think there's such valuable lessons here. Christ is going to be defined again. And I think it's good for us to be able to articulate Jesus because we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love at times. We're prone to let the world pull us away. We're prone to be captured by things that have no eternal significance. We're prone for that, aren't we? And so I love this text because it brings me right back to where I need to be. You're, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I bow my knee to you. So here, at the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's kind of given them a final exam. Anybody like finals? I just gave one a week ago. My students were thrilled over it. What do you know? That's what final exams are. Did you listen? Did you pay attention? Do you know what the Bible says? That's why we ask our seminary students. We want to make sure they know what they're talking about. Well, this is kind of a final exam for the disciples. They've been walking with them now these two and a half years. Who am I? Who am I? Let's look at a couple thoughts here this morning in our text. Number one, the world is wrong about Jesus. The world is dead wrong about Jesus. I'll add that a point there. Look at verse 27. In 28, Jesus went out along with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist and others Elijah, but others one of the prophets. So after healing the blind man, remember he's just done that. 
and he's now come across the northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee. Um, they've landed there, and, and they've watched what he has done. He's healed this blind man. He revealed clearly that this, the religious leaders of the day were totally spiritually, eternally blind. He showed them their temporary blindness, and now they're on the shore, they're on the road, and they're walking towards Caesarea Philippi, one of the most godless cities in the area. And he's talking with them. Notice in verse 27, Jesus went, along, went out and along with the disciples. So they're making their way. Now they're coming to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. So it's a day, it's a full, good, long day walk uh, coming from dealing with this last group of people. This is the a modern... Um, uh, Excuse me, this is the most northern part of Israel's reign. Uh, Jesus has taken them to the utter top of that. We would find Mount Hermon there. Uh, this is the boundary that what the Bible would call the northern marker uh, of the tribe of Dan. There's a long, large springs there. Maybe you've seen some pictures of uh, Caesarea Philippi. There's a, there's a large spring, and that feeds in and, and, and helps develop the Jordan River. Uh, there's a large cave there. You might have seen pictures of this, and there's a gate on that cave, and it was believed that this was the, the, the gate to Hades. You know where he's going at with this, don't you? Matthew chapter 16 is a parallel passage here. And he was taking them to this place that is pagan. There's a large cave. It's, it's believed that this is where the demonic world comes in and out and moves on the earth. The Caesarea came from a, a, a town that was called Panareus, um, it, was, it was named after the Greek god Pan. You remember this guy? He's half human. He's half goat, has horns, runs around. He's not real kids. Um, but he was Greek mythology. Um, he was a pagan, pagan god. Uh, he was all into the nature and, and you know, environmental stuff and all those things early on. Uh, he was completely immoral. Everything about this worship of this god was pagan and immoral. But this was a large Greek population and a very pagan group of people. And Jesus is taking them there. Notice in verse 27, on the way. So he's having this discussion on the road to Caesarea Philippi with these 12 men. And he wants them to define who Jesus is. Now, this is one of those great many teaching times Jesus has with his disciples. There's no crowds here. It's just him and the 12. And Jesus is getting them away from these oppressive crowds. Remember, everywhere he went, they just pressed on him. That would limit his teaching time with them. And so he's, he's moved them away. He's moving them away from the religious uh, leaders that keep lying about who he is. And, and Jesus knows it might have some kind of effect upon the disciples. He's also moving away from Herod. It's an interesting thought. Herod was after him for many reasons. Later in this account, Excuse me, just shortly after this count, Luke chapter 13, um, Jesus is approached by some Pharisees who say that Herod wants to kill you. And they say, go away, Herod wants to kill you. And so Jesus responds and says, go tell that fox. I love that terminology. Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. Now get this, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He's telling them right where he's going to die. And he's telling them, Herod ain't getting me. 
I'm making it to, I'm making it to Jerusalem because that's where God has appointed my death. And so he's headed to Jerusalem, even with all of this outside pressure. So think what's going on. Gentile and Jew crowds totally oppress him, totally after him for welfare program, right? The religious leaders have conspired how to kill him, and the reigning king in the area wants him dead too. And Jesus is off with his 12, and he wants to know what they think. So in Luke's account, the Bible says that Jesus had returned from praying. So they're on this road. It's a 25-mile walk. Jesus takes time to get away from uh, even the disciples, and he wants to spend time with his father. And upon returning from this time with his father, he begins to question these disciples. And it's interesting. I love this about this text. And it shows you that Jesus loves to entreat truth from people. He does this today. I hope you read your Bible this way. That it's God speaking to us. He's, in, he's often not only just telling us truth, but he questions us at times. He entreats truth out of us. What do you believe? And here Jesus is doing that very well. He is a great uh, discussion leader. He knows how to bring people into dialogue. And so he asks the right questions. And, and we can learn from him. If you love sharing the gospel, you should learn from Jesus. He knows how to pull things out of people, to ask the right questions. And, and, and think about this just from an evangelical, evangelistic uh, point of view here. What a great question to ask somebody. Who's Jesus? Just ask them that question. Who, who do you think Jesus is? You know, most of the time, they don't ever come up with real heretical, like, you know, he's a demon or something like that. There's a few people that are way out there. But most are going to say he's a good teacher, he was a good man, oh, he was martyred, that wasn't fair what they did to him. They're going to come up with stuff like that. And so you have this great opportunity to ask people, who is Jesus? And this is what he's doing. Who do people say that I am? So here Jesus wants his disciples to see the absolutely wrong view of the world. Notice in the, in the end of verse 27, he says, who do people say that I am? He uses the word anthropos. It's a very general term of, of people. I don't think he's speaking of the leaders. I think, he's, I think he knew what the leaders thought. I think the disciples knew what the leaders thought. He's saying, what do the crowds, what does the average man out there, the average woman, the average family, what are they saying about who I am? Now, of course, Jesus already knows. And that's, that's the great benefit of being Jesus. You know all things. And so he already knows, but it's a learning. See, he's teaching. He's teaching. He's teaching the people how to, to discover stuff, how to disciple somebody. One of the things that we learn about Jesus when it comes to discipling is he knows how to help people find the answer. I think one of the reasons we don't disciple well because we always like to tell people the answer. Good discipleship leads people to the text and helps them discover the truth of it. I hope you're getting involved with our partners ministry and discipleship ministry here because that's one of the things we do. As we sit with them, we help them discover for themselves the truth and that's what Jesus is doing. He absolutely knows what people think about him. He's not like, well, I wonder what the Greeks think. <laughs> He's the all-knowing God. He knows everything. But yet he, he's bringing them into this discipleship process here. And he wants them to see there's such a contrast, right? He's going to show a contrast here. And I think that's very true today. You have 
True believers who commit time and, and effort to be discipled, to grow in Christ, to gather together. And then you have an Instagram, Facebook Christianity that's out there, right? There, there's, there's those who are committed to Christ. They're committed to his word. They, they, they believe that they take up the cross and they follow Christ. This is life is meant to walk with Jesus Christ. And then there's others that go, hmm, maybe better get Jesus in the old back pocket in case this whole thing's true. Because that's going to be a problem. So I think this is what he's doing. He's showing who truly believes and who truly doesn't. Notice, notice verse 28. They reply to him. The response is, well, there's some out there that think you're John the Baptist. Now, this would have been Herod in some way, right? Herod killed John the Baptist. We studied on that in Mark. Herod thinks, hey, has John the Baptist raised from the dead? Isn't that weird? But not so weird in their culture when you think about it. They had a fascination with the, with the spirit world. Remember, even the disciples, when Jesus was walking on the water, what did they think he was? A ghost. Good job. They have a fascination with the spirit world. Isn't that true today? I mean, every other show on Discovery is about some kind of ghost show or something. Everybody's into that, wants to know the spirit world. And you can see a little bit of this. Well, they think maybe you're John the Baptist. We know he's beheaded, but maybe he's raised from the dead and you're his ghost. Right? It's crazy. This is what they thought. First John is to deal with Gnosticism of the day, false teachers that arose out of the church that taught that matter was evil, and there's no way Jesus could be in flesh because flesh is evil. And so they taught that Christ was not on earth. He was not fleshly on earth. And they separated. Now, what's the problem if Jesus isn't flesh and on earth? What's the problem? We're going to hell. That's the problem. <laughs> Nobody's there to represent us. He's the God-man. I mean, you see where this whole mysticism and spiritualism is a problem. And this is the, well, some think John the Baptist is beheaded spirit that's floating around out there. The world will believe demons over Jesus every time. That's what they'll do. The others say Elijah. Notice in text in verse 28, they said, well, some others think you're Elijah. Well, Elijah certainly was a great prophet, and God used him in a mightily way in a godless time. You study the prophet Elijah, just what a wonderful read to go back and see what kind of ministry he had. And yet, things were bad again here. Rome's ruling, uh, uh, oppression is upon the Jews. And, and so they think, well, well, maybe he's Elijah because the last prophet, Malachi, um, he prophesied that Elijah would be sent before the great day of the Lord. So you can see what they're thinking here. Messiah's going to come. He's going to crush our enemies. We're going to win. They're going to lose. Maybe he's out. No repentance. There's no repentance in that thinking. When they're looking for Elijah, they're thinking, we want to win. Just fix things. And, and, and brothers and sisters, the world wants peace without turning from sin. So give us a Jesus that will will trump our causes and will lead us to victory. There is no kingdom without a cross. And they didn't understand that. Next they said, well, he's one of the prophets. 
See, this is what the world thinks, and we're tying this together even to this day, right? And I want you to understand here, the Jews believe that Jeremiah was kind of the Indiana Jones of the Old Testament. He, they believed he knew where the Ark of the Covenant was. He might have. There's some good evidence that Jeremiah may have hidden the Ark before the destruction of Jerusalem and and off to Babylon they went, possibly did. But they thought, well, maybe he's Jeremiah, and he's got the ark, and the ark is the key, man. We get the ark, we win. You see where they're going with this. Completely wrong view of Jesus. Jesus, come back, fix things, get rid of our, these people that, that are oppressing us. Let's start a military campaign, campaign. Let's have a strong force. And today, people want Jesus to triumph their causes They don't need a savior. They just want to win. And they will lose terribly. If Jesus is not your savior, if he does not represent you on the cross, hanging there, dying in your place, you will see the depths of hell. And and the world's always after a different kind of Jesus than what the Bible teaches. But listen to some scriptures here as Jesus speaks about himself. John 17, his prayer before the night of his death, he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these, these, as he speaks of his disciples, and even he's in the passage that talks about those that will come to us through their message, they have known that you sent me. See, right off the bat, the Bible teaches the world does not know Jesus, does not know the Father. Look with me at a text, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see this. I want you to get your finger on this in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Some things don't change. Some people always want to redefine who God is, and Paul is going to deal with this with the Corinth church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, for since, for, for since in the wisdom of God, look at this, the world through its wisdom did not know how to come to God or did not come to know God. Through their own wisdom, they don't come to God. Now that's a problem. Man, man is always trying to figure out how to get to heaven or eternal rest or the big guy in the sky or whatever they, however they want to claim that. They try to come through their own wisdom and it fails every time. Look with me a little farther in this. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now why is it called the foolishness of the message? Because it's just opposite of what you and I left to ourselves would do. We would make a list. We would say, well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this in order to get this. Isn't that what man does, right? Man constantly tries to come to God through a list. Well, I'm not near as bad as that guy. I do this, and I do that. Rich young ruler, I've, I've kept all these things for my youth. We see that, right? So that's what the world would do. So what does God do? He puts a message out that's foolishness to the world. I'm sending myself, the Son of God. He's going to hang on a cross. I'm going to judge him. You better put your faith in him alone and reject all your own works. What? What is that? See, see it's, it's, not, 
It's not this inclusive group that can get there by their works. And so it's foolishness. It's a foolish message to many. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs. Well, you got to show us something, right? They came to Jesus. Hey, give us a sign so we may believe. Isn't that true today? Everybody wants a sign today. Well, you know, you gotta, you got to do something, right? you know, got to have a hearing aid in here and go, there's somebody in the room. <laughs> Show us some kind of sign in order for me to believe. What, that's works. Next group, he doesn't leave out uh, the Greeks. He says a Greek search for wisdom. Well, he's already said that the wisdom, the world through its own wisdom can't know God. And so the Greeks were known for their wisdom, right? And their studies and so forth. And Paul gets on in, in Acts chapter uh, 17, it stands on Mars Hill and says, well, you didn't do a very good job because the only one that can really show you is this unknown God. And you don't even have a name for him. Let me tell you about him. It's foolishness to them. Notice verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. What a message. That's the message. We preach Christ crucified. That's, that's who he is, that he's defining the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the crucified Savior. Look what it, else it says here. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block. What? That's not the Messiah. Our Messiah comes and tramples our enemies. We win, they lose, we reject it. It's a stumbling block to them. Goes on to say, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. You know, we have missionaries in Muslim worlds all around the world, Asian countries and Arabic countries and so forth. And imagine what they're telling Arabic people or Muslim people what they have to believe in in order to have eternal life. That Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, has come to save you. And he's a Jew. What an amazing, they're going, yeah, yeah, right. See, see, that's why we believe it's a, it is a God who opens the mind to salvation. No one in their left to themselves comes to Christ on their own. No one. You reject him. And so this is why Paul says, look, this is all foolishness. But to those who are the called, now he's talking about us, both Jews and Greeks, because God saves both Jews and Greeks, praise the Lord. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, he's defining Jesus. You want to define him? Tell people he's the power of God and he's the wisdom of God. That's who he is. He's the exact essence of him. Turn the page just over to chapter 2. You don't want to miss this. Look at verse 12. He's been talking about this work of the Spirit that reveals God. But verse 12, he says, Now we, we have received, look at this, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Look, friend, if you have the Spirit of the world, you're lost. The Spirit of the world is never going to lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the true Christ. You get to some made-up Christ or some presupposition of Christ you have made up in your mind, but you will not find the Jesus who can save your soul for eternity. And so 
Paul says, look, we have not been given the spirit of the world, but the spirit of the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. See, what's so fun being a Christian? You know what we can do? The spirit of God speaks through you. To your families, to your spouses, to your, to your children, to co-workers. To, he, because you know Christ. That's why, that's why Christians carry the greatest message of all. The world can't carry it. They're lost. Now, think about just a few other verses before we leave this thought here. James 4, 4, just write this down. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, one of the things I want you to get through this passage is Jesus is trying to show a great contrast between what the world thinks of Christ and who he really is. And so James says, look, you want to befriend the world? That is a telltale sign you don't know Jesus. Love the world or love me? Bible's black and white. It's, it's very clear cut. Do not love the world nor the things that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John said in chapter 2, verse 15. So the world is always wrong about Jesus. And they have nothing to offer Christians when it comes to defining Christ. Now we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And I want you to think about this, this statement here. The world is our mission field, not our playground. Now, it doesn't mean we don't appreciate things that people make here on this world and, and, and all the things that you know, we love to do and this great creation that God has given us. But the world is our mission field. It is not our playground. And young people, you have to be careful with that. The world wants to track you to its playground so you will forget about the God who created it and the God who saved it. It is our mission field. And so God put us in this world to, to proclaim the glories of Christ. The nation of Israel was supposed to do that, and they failed. They failed to point to God. They, they rebelled. They took in the world. They began to mark themselves constantly with the things of the world. And God gave them over to it. And it happens today, right? The same thing where people come, grow up in, in the church, but then the world just takes them away. Hey, the world's our mission field, not our playground. Live in it, enjoy it for God's glory, but it is our mission field. Don't forget those things. Number two, the father shows his children the son. The father shows his children the son. Look at back in our text in verse 29. He continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he's always a spokesman for the group, he says to them, you are the Christ. Now, after hearing what the non-follower thinks of Christ, isn't it interesting? Jesus follows up with this second question on the final. Well, who do you think I am? The first question showed the contrast, right? The world, they got it all messed up. They're, they're thinking you're a beheaded uh, prophet, <laughs> right? They, they don't know that. But notice in verse 29, I want you to just catch this right here. He says, but who do you? Now this is recorded in three of the Gospels. You is always emphatic. 
It's, it is an emphatic point. Who do you, I'm done with them, I'm not talking about them anymore. He's now talking to you. Who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, 16, which is the parallel passage, Simon Peter answers, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, what a contrast to a beheaded prophet. What, what a contrast. You are the Christ. You are the chosen one. You are the promised one. You are the sent one. And you're the son of the living God. You're equal with the Father. You're sent to make God known to man. Wow, what a statement. What a statement. And to keep Peter thinking that this is some great idea that he came out in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. The Father loves to reveal the Son. And, and I want you to stop just right now and think about your salvation. Maybe you were six, maybe you were 16, maybe you were 60. I don't know what age you were when you came. But the Father took great pleasure showing you right, who you are if you're a believer, he found great pleasure showing you his son. Have you ever said, Lord, I want to thank you for showing me your son? Paul does, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, but when God, who set me apart in my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? God, in his... In all of his godness, right? <laughs> this great infinite God who has all things in control, who's always existed, he's eternal, unchanging God, found pleasure in showing Scott Menez his son. Man, if that doesn't roll your socks up and down, you better check your pulse. Because there's seven billion people on this planet right now and I don't know how many people have ever lived, but somebody probably does. And God took pleasure in showing me and you, if you're a believer, his son. Now that's astounding, and that makes me want to define Jesus to somebody. And tell them who he is and what he does. I don't know, maybe the disciples were struggling with some of the doubt of the false teachers. And so he's reminding of these things. John the Baptist, remember, he kind of struggled, right? He called Jesus you know, and, and he's in jail and he sends a messenger, one of his disciples, and said, hey, are you, are you the long-expected one or should we be looking for another? So even John the Baptist, who was a devout lover of the Messiah, he even wrestled with it at times. So maybe, maybe he's trying to reassure them they're going into battle here. He's going to hang on a cross. They're going to be locked in an upper room, scared for their own lives. So Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's reassuring them of who he is. And don't read the Bible with a bunch of doubt. Don't read the Bible with a lot of fear. Read the Bible with a lot of security to it. It's God talking to you. It's God showing you that he loves you. And he loves his children. And though we may struggle, and certainly the disciples did, he wants your faith squarely in the Son. He wants you to follow Christ, the royal one, the chosen one, the sent one. He wants you to believe every day that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He wants you to believe that he's equal with God. He wants you to not only have a Savior who saves you from your sins, but he's your Savior every day. Do you have a Savior every day? Or was that just that time where you prayed with Grandma? 
is your Savior today. That's why we sing what we sing. It's why Hayward picks out the songs we sing because he's our Savior today and tomorrow and the next day. And he'll always be our Savior. And I think that's what he's doing. He's trying to help these disciples understand and articulate what they believe. And get the answer right. Remember, they're going to walk into Caesarea Philippi. And he's told them that, look, I'm building my church. The gates of hell itself won't stop it. And they're going to walk into, uh, into Caesarea Philippi after this great teaching lesson. And they're going to go, well, there's the gates of hell. We're in hell, it seems like, with all these pagans. Let's trust Christ. I mean, he, isn't he so masterful the way he lays things out for them? Third thought. And this is where things are getting personal here, if it's not personal already. God's plans often test our faith. Look at verses 30 through 32a. He warned them to tell no one about him. Well, Sky, you just told us about telling people who Jesus is. Look what he's doing. He, he warned them, don't tell anybody about me. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again, and look at verse 32, the beginning of it, and he was stating the matter plainly. Now, this is a stern warning by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the verse that came to mind as I was studying this, I said, Lord, this is Isaiah 55. This is your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. I mean, I, I'm hearing this message from Jesus that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. I'm going to build my church and so forth and so on. And I'm going, hey, I want to go tell everybody. And he goes, I don't want you to tell anybody. And you go, well, what's going on here? Well, there's a different plan. And God's plan will often test our faith. The kingdom the disciples longed for was not coming yet. And the Lord needed to help the disciples not to get the cart before the horse. The good news, and listen, he doesn't want him to tell anybody because the good news was not ready. Because what's the good news? Jesus died for your sins and beat death, Satan, and sin and rose from the grave. That hasn't happened yet. You see how easy it is for humans to get the cart before the horse? Some of you old, uh, younger people, that means that the cart is in front of the horse. It doesn't work really well. There's something, there's a pattern, there's something that has to happen for it. And, and this, is what, this is what has to happen. And so there's no message, there's no missions without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So you can't, here's some practical. Don't tell, G, don't tell people Jesus is a good guy. That's not the message. Don't tell people that, well, Jesus heals and, and we watched him open the eyes of the blind. He does all that. That's not the message. He's telling them, don't tell them about that stuff. I don't want them to hear that. I have a different plan. And it's going to test your faith to the brink. That's what he's doing with them here, isn't he? Verse 31 through 32, we begin to see Jesus immediately teaches the disciples what he's going to take place. And I, and I can't help but think this is the last thing the disciples wanted to hear. Especially after you got the final right. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. We got it right. A plus. You passed the exam. What? You're going to die? What about us sitting on your left and your right and, and we win and all that stuff? That's not what God was doing. You're the Messiah. 
Let's go, man. Come on, you're the Messiah. We found you. We're the first ones here. We get the best prize. Notice Jesus is beginning to teach the gospel to them. Don't miss this in in verse 31. He's teaching the gospel to them. Notice the little phrase, he, look at this, it's circled in my Bible, he must suffer. He must suffer. Don't, Don't take the suffering of Jesus out of the message. He's not your healer. He's not your Medicare program. He's none of those things. He is the sufferer. He is the one who must perfect our salvation. And so we don't tell people about Jesus outside of that gospel message that Christ dies for your sins. And unfortunately, there's a whole movement of prosperity gospel out there that never talks about this stuff. Believe in Jesus and get healthy, wealthy, and wise. Jesus would rebuke them on that if he was here. And he begins to share the gospel. Look, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must rise from the dead. The cross is no accident. I want you to get that. The cross is no accident. He had to make us perfect. Peter would get this later in Acts chapter 2 in his great sermon on Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 23. This is what Peter says. This man, speaking of Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. And Jesus is saying, you just hold on. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the message. And Jesus had previously told the religious leaders that, that the only sign they would get was a sign of Jonah. And they're going, you imagine when they walked away from that? What does that mean? Jonah went to Nineveh. And later he says, you know, the Ninevites will judge you. None of this goes over good with righteous, self-righteous religious leaders. He goes, yeah, Jonah. Well, what is that? Well, Jonah went into the belly of the whale. (laughs) And just like that, I will go into the heart of the earth. I will die and I will rise again. That's the message. And those who did not know God did not understand this. What I like about verse 32 is he says that it said he stated the matter plainly. This is plain. There's no parable, there's no suggestive speech, there's no kingdom before a cross. And this must have shook the disciples. This must have shook their plans of what they had. And and, and I look at this, this, God's plans often test our faith. God's plans often test our faith. He does that with us still to this day. You're going, well, I thought life was going to go this way. Uh, No, God had the plan this way. And in 11... 11 of these men submit to the plan of God. One who saw all things, witnessed everything, rejects the plan of God and dies eternally in hell. Fourth thought. Set your mind on self. Set your mind on self and you may speak for Satan. I had to think long and hard how I want to say this. Set your mind on self and you may speak for Satan. Look at verse 32b and following. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Him is Jesus. 
But turning around and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man. In spite of, of Jesus' matter-of-fact instruction, right? He talked very plainly to them, very matter-of-fact to them. Peter has a different agenda for Jesus. <laughs> Anybody ever have a different agenda for what God wants to do in your life? I, see, I think all of my agendas have been different. And this is a problem. Um, because there, there, there's an arrogance that comes about us when we don't accept what God is doing and will do foolish things. Would it not be foolish to say of Peter to rebuke Jesus? Do you know the word rebuke in the Greek? You know what it means? It means to expose error. I uh, think, Peter, you're barking up the wrong tree here. Error in Jesus? But this is what it takes us, right? When we, when we think of ourselves before we think of the plan of God, when we don't submit to him, when God's doing something that we didn't think should go that way, we pull him aside in a sense and put our little foot down and say, well, God, I don't like what you're doing. I think you should do it something else. And we may not say that because we probably because we're good Christians and we never say that out loud. But we sure act like it at times, don't we? We're frustrated. You've given me this person, or you've given me this disease, or, or I don't have enough money, or whatever it is. We don't like it when God's plan doesn't match ours. James chapter 4, 16 and 17. Just write this down. But as it is, but as it is you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And you know what? We know that God is always right. Don't we? We don't like it at times. God, I, I really didn't think I had time for cancer. I really didn't think I had time to take care of this family member or, or, or to go through financial bankruptcy or whatever it is that I'm going through. I didn't think this was your plan. And, and when we fight against the plans of God, we find ourselves in sin. And, and this is what Peter does. This is how we react the same way. Verse 32, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And then verse 33, Jesus turns around. He looks at his disciples and says, oh, we got a problem here. The leader, the leader among leaders, is pulling me aside to expose air. He, isn't that interesting? Look at that phrase. He turns around and seeing his disciples. Where are you going to go with this, Peter? What are you going to do with what I've told you? Because all this group is looking at you. And then he rebukes Peter. So it reverses, right? Peter's intent was to rebuke Jesus. He ends up getting rebuked. And in the end, he, he draws, Jesus draws his disciples into their conversations. And in an, in a, really in a real way, he says, do you really believe this? Do you believe that this is going to happen? If, if, they, if they didn't like the whole suffering thing, the death and all of those, they're not going to like this next statement. And what Jesus, in essence, was saying is you are acting and you're speaking like Satan and you're opposing God's plan because you set your interest on yourself and not on God. And brothers and sisters, I, I was studying this week and I go, Lord, I have done this too many times. 
There's times where I don't like the way that life is going or what's happening, and you begin to be frustrated, and you begin to say, God, why? And, and I don't think there's a problem. I, I, I believe that you can question God and the right motives, right? I think David says, God, why do the wicked prosper? But we know when it moves from right motives to selfish motives, don't we? And we may not even talk to God. We may just act poorly. We're mad. We treat people poorly that are around us because things are not going the way we thought. And there, the great Messiah comes alongside us in very kindness through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and says, Hey, are you on my team or on your own? And really, to think this through this as we finish this up, we are ultimately saying, God, you're wrong. We won't let that out of our mouths, will we? Heavens, no, we would never let it out of our mouths. But when we fight God, when he has allowed, clearly allowed something to happen in our lives, when we fight him and put our heels in the ground, we say, God, you're wrong. I think it should be this way. So when we choose to fight God's plan, we too are guilty of pursuing our own interests and rejecting God's. And yes, his ways are different and his thoughts are different, but his ways and his thoughts are always right. And that's what this message is about. Define him correctly and obey him. Is that not what the Christian life is? Now, now this is full of joy, right? We do this with joy. Define Jesus biblically. Be able to say who he is. Fight the world's influence. Accept God's plan. Ask him for joy and trials. And preach the gospel to yourself each day to remind you that this is hard. And Lord, I need you. And you died for me. And I'm so grateful. And you won't find yourself being called a spokesman for Satan. (laughs) We don't want that, do we? Lord, he's good to us, isn't he? He suffered for us and died for us. Define him properly and live for him. Amen? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us this great truth again today, Lord. What a, what a great passage to remind us of how to love and walk with him, Lord. Father, bless our afternoon, particularly bless our picnic together as your children fellowship together and enjoy one another. May that be a great encouragement to all of us and may our Father in heaven see joy as his children fellowship in his name. Amen.